The Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to grieve over Saul? I have rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your home with oil and get along. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have found my next king among his sons. How can I do that? Samuel asked. When Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say, I have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to come to the sacrifice, and I will make clear to what you had to do. You will, anoint for him, you will anoint for me the person I point out to you. Samuel did what the Lord instructed. When he came to Bethlehem, the city elders came to meet him. They were shaking with fear. Do you come in peace, they asked. Yes, Samuel answered. I've come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Now make yourselves holy, then come with me to the sacrifice. Samuel made Jesse and his sons holy and invited them to the sacrifice as well. When they arrived, Samuel looked at Eli and thought, <clears throat> that must be the Lord's anointed right in front. But the Lord said to Samuel, have no regard for his appearance or stature because I haven't selected him. God doesn't look at things like humans do. Humans see only what is visible to the eyes, but the Lord sees into the heart. Next, Jesse called for Abinadab, who presented himself to Samuel. But he said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. So Jesse presented Shammah. But Samuel said, no, the Lord hasn't chosen this one. Jesse presented seven of his sons to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord hasn't picked any of these. Then Samuel asked, Jesse, is that all of your boys? They're still the youngest one, Jesse answered, but he's out keeping the sheep. Send for him, Samuel told Jesse, because we can't proceed until he gets here. So Jesse sent and brought him in. He was reddish brown, had beautiful eyes, and was good looking. The Lord said, that's the one. Go anoint him. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him right there in front of his brothers. The Lord's spirit came over David from that point forward. It's the word of God, the people of God. Thanks for God. Gary, that was a really nice uh, reading of, the, of David's physical features. That was really nice. Uh, I, I like that part. So I remember sitting in my dorm room as a freshman at Osceola Hall at Florida State in early uh, fall 2001. A few, a, few weeks, a few weeks later, I'd be coming home from my 8.30 a.m. class, and that's the class when you're a freshman in college that seems so late and like a great idea when you're used to high school, and then you get to college and you realize 8.30 is ridiculous, right? So a few weeks later, I come home from my 8.30 class, to see towers being crashed into and smoking as people of Manhattan flee on the TV in the dorm room lobby, uh, to give you a little, a little context for this time in my life. But anyways, I, I remember sitting in my, in my dorm room, and I had just gotten my first laptop, maybe one of the first laptops ever made. And I, like, I hooked it into the blue Ethernet cable because Wi-Fi, what was that, right? Um, and I started searching this really cool new site where you could like bid on online auctions. Like you might have heard of eBay, existed then, right? But I, 
I distinctly remember agonizing over whether I should or should not like bid on this uh, specific piece of sports memorabilia. You see, I had just gotten my first credit card, and I'm on eBay, and I see this park, this section of parquet floor signed. And like parquet floor to the uninitiated is like what 60 split level homes have. My home has three different kinds of parquet, or high school basketball courts have parquet floors. So this high school in Ohio was auctioning off sections of parquet floor signed by this teenager. I thought it'd be a great idea, right? Um, like, th this should appreciate from the $20 that I'm gonna bid on this. But I knew, I was so nervous, I'm, I'm a firstborn and I'm really nervous and I don't like to get in trouble and I knew that my parents got my credit card statements and it would be hard even though I was a business major, to justify like investing in an emerging equity market uh, on eBay, you know? And so I passed on this. This is fall 2001. The February 2002 Sports Illustrated featured this picture on the cover of a high school junior in, in Akron, Ohio named LeBron James with the, with the title The Chosen One. And then he got that tattoo shortly thereafter across his shoulder blades, which is awesome. Uh, that was the signature that I passed up on for $20. The article goes on to list a who's who of friends that this 17-year-old already had. Like it, the, it opens, you can find this article online, and it opens with this, this uh, conversation he's having, just like casual conversation he's 17 year old basketball players having with Michael Jordan. Um, and then the time that he's spending backstage with Jay-Z uh, at Madison Square Garden. So it seems at that time, uh, everyone, except for me, knew who this guy was. They, LeBron James was this heir apparent, this chosen one. Even as a lanky 17 year old, he, he still kind of looked and acted the part. But to call this guy the chosen one seems like really religious language, like whether, whether you, you think about it or not. Like, it's a, it's a wonder that, that some of this like religious iconography and language keeps kind of popping up throughout his career. I think there's a couple more slides, Jay. Like, something like, is there another slide, Jay? Yeah, something like that. Like, might hearken to Jesus walking through the crowds. I imagine LeBron James saying, who touched me and where's my power going out of? Uh, or, th or this next one, like, this is when it gets really almost sacrilegious, right? We're all witnesses, right? You can move on. <laughs> Our scripture today, and I, I, I'm a little out of sorts talking about basketball. It's not, my, it's not really my primary thing. I, I like LeBron, I'm not crazy about LeBron. But our scripture today finds the prophet Samuel who had anointed Israel's first king, Saul, attempting to find Israel's next chosen one. You see, a little backstory on Saul, if you forget. Israel wasn't satisfied with having God as their king. They needed someone that they could kind of 
wrap their hands around, wrap their minds around, someone they could dress up to go into battle, someone who they could appeal to for help, someone who would bring about justice for them. Notice this theme that's emerging. They're talking about God. They want someone to be God for them in 3D in front of them. They're basically saying to God's face that they need someone to do for them what God had already been doing and pledging to do. Perhaps God seemed like too distant or too unruly. They needed someone who they could understand, someone who they could potentially even manipulate. So long story short, God reluctantly and probably heartbreakingly agrees to give them what they want. And they choose Saul. Like a parent, God so often gives us what we want, even when it's so much less than what God wants for us. Even when it's a person who might clumsily fulfill a role in a space only meant for God's own self. So Saul is anointed, and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul. This is the theme of our summer, as I mentioned earlier, is tracing God's spirit. And so today we're talking about God's anointing spirit that shows up throughout Scripture. The spirit comes upon Saul, and this seems to be programmatic throughout Scripture. Wherever there is an anointing, and specifically uh, oil kind of signifies anointing, there too is the spirit of the Lord. This oil is kind of like sacramental. It's like a physical sign of something that's really intangible. This oil is a sacramental sign of God's spirit's work. So then, again, we fast forward, and this whole Saul thing seems to really have gone wrong. (laughs) He's not the leader that they thought they wanted and needed, but God continues to accommodate. The spirit departs from Saul, and it makes Saul go crazy. Read back through this. This is some crazy narration of of this episode in the life of of God's people. And I think this goes to show how kind and preserving God's spirit can be, that even while things are bad, think of how bad they might be if God had not decided to take care and not been involved in his people. So the spirit of the Lord, while powerful, is never one to coerce or overwhelm. Even in Saul, the wrong guy, the spirit is upon him and is at work in him. Saul's weaknesses are still able to undo him, um, even with the spirit upon him, and then the spirit departs from him. I think another episode of this, like another case study of this, that we've heard a lot about in the last couple years Um, in scripture is this 16th century BC uh, king, the king of Persia, who then takes over Babylon, King Cyrus. And this was a guy that many Christians who supported our president's uh, electoral bid appealed to, basically saying, this guy was terrible, but God anointed Cyrus to do good work, right? Um, This King Cyrus did have the spirit of the Lord upon him, even though he was heading a rival empire and didn't know God. How strange is that? Like, how kind of embarrassing is that for for God's people, um, that that God had to work through someone who uh, was their enemy? But that spirit didn't make Cyrus altogether different than Cyrus already was nor did it make Persia into some kind of Israel. 
Like, we, we have to be careful when we read these stories to understand this stuff. Don't get it confused. The Spirit anoints for God's purposes, but God's Spirit is free to anoint whomever God's Spirit wants. I'm not trying to spook you guys out with that, right? But God is going to do what God wants. Otherwise, God wouldn't be God. God would be an idol who we could control, who we could make decisions for, who we could predict the next move. Isn't that the point of the title, the chosen one? Not the most worthy one or the accomplished one or even the most pious one, but rather the one set apart and chosen by God to further God's purpose. That's what the Spirit's at work doing throughout this Old Testament. Saul and Cyrus are the exceptions that prove the rule. God can and will use anyone, even the powerful, (laughs) even the arrogant, even the obvious. And this should be good news to us, that God will even use the people who, like, are on top. The rest of the story is, is that God normally chooses the others. Praise God for that. That's good news for us, right? So snap back to our scripture passage, and we find Samuel. Not the anointed one, but Samuel is the anointing one. God says, as, as Samuel is devastated by the wreckage of Saul's life and work, the Lord says, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? I've rejected him as king of Israel. So fill up your horn. That's what you would fill oil with as you travel, travel container. Fill up your horn and get going. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I've found my next king among his sons. This is all pretty surprising and exciting stuff. Samuel gets going in secret because shaky kings don't like to hear that they might be headed for a fall. He fears Saul. He says, Saul wants to kill me if he knows about this. And then he arrives at Bethlehem, and our, like, Christmas brains should ping at the, at the, at the mention of Bethlehem. Something is happening here, Right? This is an important place. And, and so Samuel goes to Bethlehem and stands in front of a lineup of dashing young lads, Jesse's boys. This is some sort of like bachelorette lineup with only one rose that the Lord is calling someone, right? So Samuel makes his way down the line. Eliab, Abinadab, Shema, I, I think they started getting tired of the name, so he says, Shema, you know. Um, Nathaniel, Radai, Ozem, and then right off the bat, it, <laughs> Samuel just thinks it's the first guy. He's like, okay, I'm here. It's got to be the first guy. He's he's big, handsome guy. I, I imagine them, like, standing, like, in height order, you know, like, like that. Um, and then right off the bat, the Lord tells Samuel, have no regard for this one's appearance or stature. I haven't selected Eliab. God doesn't look at things like humans do. Humans only see what is visible to the eyes, but the Lord sees the heart. This, of course, is something that Samuel should have known from the Saul debacle, right? Saul was handsome, and it says Saul was about a head and shoulders higher than any other guy that even remotely looked the part. But even Samuel who's doing God's work here, can't get out of the habit of letting his own implicit bias overrule the Spirit's choosing. It's so 
tempting to us. It's something that we slip into uh, even without thinking. How many times a day do we fall prey to these same temptations? How hard is it to overcome the way our eyes and our hearts guide the ways we, upset, we like, assess how God is working and through whom God's going to work? A uh, friend of the church, Dr. Christina Cleveland, wrote an awesome whole book called Disunity in Christ about the sociology of the many ways that these powerful forces inside of us work to further divide us. And instead of paying attention to how God's working and where God's going, we seek familiarity and protection, or we favor people who best reflect our own hopes and identities and thoughts about ourselves back at us. These, of course, don't seem like very insidious motives or ideas, right? Like familiarity, protection, self-esteem, like those are, those are goods. In fact, our brains are even set up in a way to help us deal with all like the overwhelming amount of data that, that, we're, uh, that our brains are flooded with. So we group and we categorize in order to make sense of the world and, and to be able to make snap decisions without like starting from scratch each time where we encounter something. And that's kind of what Samuel's doing. He thinks he knows what God's going to pick. He thinks he knows because if it were up to him, and based on his imagination on what God should look like in human form, he thinks this dude should be powerful and handsome and unable to be beaten. His view of God says we should find all these positive characteristics and just turn them up to 11. And like, that's the guy. That should be the guy, that's how God should be. But alas, that's not how God works. That's not even who God is. That's not whom the Spirit is looking to anoint. God's Spirit works with us, but at times cuts against and opens out our lazy imaginations. God's Spirit shatters our lazy imaginations. So instead... Of the previous seven brothers, instead, it's David. David's not even there. <laughs> David's out at work in the fields, probably stinking, tending sheep. And it says, so Jesse sent and brought him in. And this is the part that Gary read so great. He was reddish brown, had beautiful eyes, and was good looking. The Lord said, that's the one. Go anoint him. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him right in front of his brothers. That probably went over really well, right? The, the little small fry youngest brother, like jumping line, right? And at that point, the Lord's spirit came over David. I find an, an interesting detail about David's appearance. Note that the spirit's anointing doesn't just happen automatically um, it doesn't, like, automatically swing to the other end of the pendulum. Like, it doesn't just go for the most, like, Quasimodo-looking dude, right? Like, <laughs> it says, no, the Lord doesn't look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart, but it also says David was good-looking. <laughs> the point is, there is no automatic with the spirit of the living God. There's just what the spirit wants to do. Don't make the rules for the spirit of the living God. As Jesus muses in John's gospel, the wind, the spirit, blows wherever it wishes. 
You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from and where it's going. It's the same with everyone who is born of the Spirit. No automatic qualifiers, no automatic disqualifiers. As then, so now, anyone can be and is chosen by, come upon and filled up with the Holy Spirit to fulfill God's mission. One commentator puts it, the strength or weakness of means is neither the spur nor the bridle to the determinate choices of God. I think this is like academic horse speak, right? If that's a thing. That means whatever you are or aren't bringing to the table will neither spur God on nor bridle God to a halt. It is God doing the work that we join into. That's what the Spirit's working. That's what the Spirit's furthering. I think anyone who's had a decent mentor kind of implicitly knows how this works. Has anyone in here had a mentor, like someone who, like, has been massively important to your life and vocation? I'm not talking about someone who has to be your mentor because, like, it's how your job is set up and, like, they have to show you or they get fired, right? I'm talking someone who sees something in you and helps you along because you uh, don't really know what you're doing not because you know what you're doing, but because exactly because you don't know what you're doing. This is someone who sees something in you that you don't see and can't imagine in yourself. This is like an amazing ability and an amazing gift to cultivate. Maybe the hardest couple things for a small, young church like ours is that we don't have just like a large quantity of older folks standing around gathering younger folks under their wings saying, let me mentor you. We just don't have a lot. Like, I'm one of the older people in this room. That's scary. I think the other hard thing is that it's really hard to shift from, like, the mentality of someone looking to be mentored because you are honest with yourself and you don't know what you're doing to realizing the fact that you should be the mentor, right? That you should find someone um, because we've become the ones with experience and wisdom to offer. Gosh, that's so scary. We're the older ones in the room, and for as much as it feels like we have no idea what we're doing, there are people in our midst that have even less of an idea what they're doing, and they're just really good at faking it. We're all really good at faking it. These are the, the exact, precise conditions that the anointing Spirit of God wants to enter in and set you apart for the collaborative work of growth and healing with God. When you don't know what you're doing, but you're aware enough to, to call and invite and make room for God to come into that. It's precisely this kind of work that David starts to make habits as Israel's king of doing. This is David at David's best. This is David pouring his heart out to God in the Psalms, saying, save me, over and over. Saying, I'm in trouble without you, God. This is David having a deep friendship kind of across the aisle with Saul's son, Jonathan. This is David ruling with tenderness and equity and compassion. This is David parenting in a really tumultuous family. Read that story. Or perhaps most importantly, this is David after David sins by murdering Uriah and raping Bathsheba, and he repents. We'll spend more time with Psalm 51 next week, but here's a little preview of David's repentance psalm. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than the snow. 
Let me hear joy and celebration again. Let the bones you crushed rejoice once again. Hide your face from my sins. Wipe away my guilty deeds. Create a clean heart for me, God. Put a new faithful spirit deep inside of me. David wants a clean heart. Remember, God doesn't look at appearances, but God looks at the heart. David wants a clean heart. This heart that we're told strides after God's own heart, and David wants it back. He knows this sort of renewal can only come by the Spirit. That's why he says, put a new faithful spirit in me. Bring your spirit back, even though it's probably never gone. In this episode, this prayer, David is at his worst and his best. He's at his most reliant on God, and he's at his most surprised that God can and will still work through sinful people like David, like me, like y'all. It's here that any confidence that David has in David, any confidence that we have that David is the one, like the one, the chosen one, it's dashed. Because someone who's praying like that is probably not, like, is one of the Lord's anointed, but it's probably not the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who is to come. The Lord's anointed then had to point beyond David, through David, to someone who might more fully and faithfully embody God's mission and hopes. Good thing we have a description of this. (laughs) Isaiah 61 speaks of and for this anointed one. And if you've been around Oak Church for any length of time, you should know that Isaiah 61 is really important to Oak Church. (laughs) It says the first three verses. This is on the screen uh, too, I think. "The The Lord God's spirit is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He sent me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to to captives and liberation of prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and a day of vindication for our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for Zion's mourners, to give them a crown in place of ashes, oil of joy in place of mourning, a mantle of praise in place of discouragement. They will be called oaks of righteousness planted for the Lord to glorify himself. This is the job description of the one who is to come. The one who God's spirit has anointed, chosen to participate with God and lead in God's mission of renewal for all creation. This is the description of Jesus, the Christ. We've got to remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a description of who he is. Christ, the Messiah, uh, even though the wording in, in Greek, the Christos is the name of the oil of anointing. <laughs> this, this one who was set apart, set apart as a prophet, as a priest, as a king. Notice how many action verbs there are um, in this Isaiah 61. Gospeling, binding up, liberating, proclaiming jubilee, comforting, providing. Perhaps the last three things of this section are most astonishing. A crown in place of ashes. Oil, again, your head should ping at that. Oil of joy instead of mourning. And a mantle of praise in place of discouragement. These are all like royal 
priestly features, not just worn by the chosen one, Jesus, but imparted by him to the lowly. He places a tiara on the ashen forehead of someone on the underside of society. This anointed one does some anointing of his own, too, with oil in place of mourning. Like, uh, there's, there's one key spot in the book of James, in James 5, and it's kind of in passing, but it says um, all these things that are happening in the community. And one of them says, if anyone am- among you is sick, then your elders should go pray for them and anoint their foreheads with oil, and they'll be forgiven and they'll, and they'll be healed. That's what you're hoping for. That's what you're praying for. And so I can't help but think of my friend, Kate Bowler, who, who some of you have read her amazing book. And she talks about um, when she was really in the throes of suffering with stage four cancer, how m- many, she's a, a seminary professor. And, and when you're a seminary professor, you have a lot of clergy at your disposal visiting you at like at all times. And she said she had so many clergy friends come to anoint her at o- with oil because she was sick and she felt like she'd have like a permanent acne cross right between her eyes, right? Because of all the anointing. But that, that's what the Messiah here, the chosen one is doing, is, is trading out our sorrow for joy and anointing us, calling us. But here the vision is that these ones who have been cast out are now set apart. And then finally, the mantle of praise. This is, is a priestly garment, like a prophetic vestment for those who have previously been discouraged but now have an imagination for reversal and renewal to share and challenge anyone who thinks things can never be different. That's a prophetic vocation, calling people into a new reality that exists because God says it exists, because God's making a way. So, of course, this... Isaiah 61 text, of course, it's Jesus' first sermon. If, if you get a chance, this week, flip to Luke 4. And after Jesus was, was baptized, after he was sent by the Spirit into the wilderness, then he shows up in the synagogue and it says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. I especially love the detail after his reading. And, and his reading is like verbatim. Isaiah 61. I love the detail after his reading uh, in the synagogue is finished, and it says, Jesus says, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the synagogue assistant, and sat down. Every eye in the synagogue was fixed upon him. He began to explain to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled just as you heard it. That is an ancient Near Eastern mic drop if I've ever seen one, right? Like, that is incredible. Every eye is on him. He says, today you've seen it fulfilled right here. The Spirit, for as much freedom as God's Spirit has to pull strange and unlikely characters into God's purposes, the Spirit is no freelancer, no wild card. There's consistency and direction in what the Spirit's doing. God's purpose is always head towards justice, compassion, enlightenment, liberation, and healing. So Jesus can point to himself and say, these are happening in your midst because you're watching me do these things. You're watching me heal. You're watching me gospel. You're watching me lift up the lowly. Now all of these things have been embodied in Jesus. The scripture has indeed been fulfilled 
in Jesus, but it hasn't been concluded. Scripture has been fulfilled. It's active, but a lid has not been put on this scripture. The Spirit of the Lord is still calling. The Spirit of the Lord is still falling upon us, still anointing folks like you and I with nothing special about us except for our proximity to Jesus and our our identity in Jesus. The Spirit is still setting us apart, as the words of, of 1 Peter 2, as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession. It says, once you weren't a people, but now you're a people, you're God's people. Calling us as God's royal priesthood to join in the work of good newsing to the poor in a world full of bad news and fake news. Of, of binding up the brokenhearted with a healing balm of friendship and availability and generosity and costly grace and table fellowship and all of these things in which we open up our lives to people that are hurting and we're listening to them and sometimes we're material materially helping them, but oftentimes we're just helping them by our own presence. Calling us into this mission of liberation for every sort of bondage, especially the sorts of like cyclical slaveries of sin which we perpetuate and participate in our own suffering and the suffering of others. That's how sin works. It's not just something you do, but it's also something that has you calling us into this mission of enlightening dark places in our neighborhoods and in our understandings with the light of truth and the courage to see anew. Before light helps us see, it hurts our eyes when we're used to darkness. And of calling us into this proclamation of jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor and forgiveness, whereby we forgive as we've been forgiven and make a new world where forgiveness and mercy are the modus operandi, not scarcity, but forgiveness. This is the work we've been anointed for and called into. This is the work which we've been anointed and equipped for by God's Spirit. God's not going to send you unequipped. In fact, when Jesus sends his disciples out after mentoring them a little bit, again, mentoring, he says, don't take anything with you. Don't take extra clothes. Don't take extra money. Just go. And as you're going, proclaim the good news, pray, and anoint with oil. (laughs) Again, take your horn and go. This is the work that, like, like those disciples like Samuel, that we should fill our horn with oil and get going because God is sending us. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this this mission statement um, from Isaiah 61. This mission statement that um, has only been perfectly fulfilled by Jesus, but we're invited into and it's work that's going to take the rest of our lives um, to learn and to do. It's going to even go beyond our lives because it's not about us, but you've sent your spirit and you've called us into that work and you've equipped us, you challenge us and, and you, you help us work with other people in your body that have different gifts and styles than us. Lord, by your spirit, make us one that we might um, work together as we work with you in this world. We thank you 
uh, for your spirits. Um, surprising and generous and, um, and powerful work in our midst. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.